0: I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is easy. Equity.
1: Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast where we help you learn to invest in 45 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name's Bryce and as always I'm joined by my equity buddy Ren. How's it going bro?
2: I'm very good Bryce, very excited for this episode. For the first time ever we've got someone from the ASX on. (laughs) We've talked about investing for four years And now we've actually got someone from the exchange.
1: That's a good point. So no pressure to our
2: guest
3: uh, (laughs) at all. uh,
1: Thanks, guys. It's our pleasure to welcome Rory Cunningham to the show. Rory, welcome.
3: Yeah, thanks, guys. Pleasure to be here.
1: So Rory is Senior Manager of Investment Products at the Australian Securities Exchange or the ASX. He's responsible for expanding the range of investment products that are available on the ASX and for making those products more accessible to investors throughout Australia. So we'll pick his brains a little later on that. Before joining ASX, Rory held positions at Fidelity Investments and Perpetual Investments, and he holds a Bachelor of Commerce and an MBA from the University of Sydney. So great to have you on. The reason we have you here today, Rory, is because the ASX have just released their investor survey for 2020, and we're very excited to dig into some of that and understand what's going on in the investor landscape.
3: Yeah, there's a lot there. So yeah, it'll be a good conversation. Thank you.
2: Now, before we get into that, we do like to start with a bit of a game, overrated or underrated. So we'll throw out a few different ideas, a few concepts and get your thoughts on them. And we'll start with a non-Australian index. We won't ask you about the ASX straight up. <laughs> so overrated or underrated, the S&P 500 index? Good question. I'm going to go with underrated from an
3: investment strategy point of view. I'm not even going to try to guess around valuation, but I think from from an investment strategy point of view, underrated.
1: I guess then we have to follow with the ASX 200, overrated <laughs> or underrated.
3: It's, it's going to be the same answer. And I suppose we'll get into this in a little bit. But when you look at these key indices around the world, be that the S&P 500 or the ASX, S&P ASX 200, I think they provide really good tools for investors to be able to build portfolios. And I think when you look out 5, 10, 15, 20 years, that's extremely valuable to, to investors over time. So, yeah, that, that's kind of starting to go into my investment philosophy. But, uh, yeah, I think, I think these benchmarks around the world have done incredible things for investors. Yeah, nice.
2: Yeah, definitely. Now, obviously, we're in the midst of COVID-19 and we've seen an unprecedented whatever it takes response from the US Federal Reserve. Overrated or underrated that policy response?
3: It's a good question. Well, the market certainly loved it. Oh, they loved it. (laughs) Hasn't it? (laughs) So probably fairly valued. Listen, I'm going to go with underrated here. I think, you know, reserve banks around the world have navigated, as the word is, unprecedented events very well. They've given investors confidence. They've given companies confidence. So I think around the world, uh, they've done a very good job. So underrated, for my mind.
2: Not only have they given investors confidence, they may have given Tesla investors too much confidence. Based on its recent performance. <laughs>
1: overrated or underrated, Bitcoin? Oh, overrated. Not a Bitcoin believer. Oh, wow.
3: To to, to be honest. And I think it comes down to invest in what you know.
1: Yeah. And and I, I don't know much about it. So, as senior manager of investment products at the ASX, I assume then there will be no cryptocurrency exchange supported by the ASX. No, that's not right. Oh,
3: <laughs> heard it here first. Well, <laughs> Chicago's done a futures market. You could do the same. No, it, separating, I suppose, my my personal attitudes towards Bitcoin yeah. to, to my corporate life. Yes, you know, I think ASX plays a really important role and, and a gatekeeper but um, to some extent in terms of the product that's admitted to the exchange. And that is a very important role given the, the, the number of retail investors and institutional investors that, that do invest via the exchange. But having said that, we are still a marketplace and we do believe that actually investors are better placed to to make decisions on on where they put their money. So we focus on on things like quality disclosure and robustness of of the way in which a product or or a company operates, so more the regulatory environment.
2: Nice. Can't wait to see the Bitcoin futures market in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, another alternative asset that has done very well recently has been gold. So, overrated or underrated, gold?
3: Or oh, so there's um one of my teammates. We always have this debate. He loves gold. He's a buyer of gold. I'm a seller. I'm overrated gold. Okay. <laughs> yeah, right. Fair enough. I'm from the, I suppose, the Warren Buffett school. If you like, I just think. When I retire, what is gold going to give me? It's not going to generate an income for me. Why do, I, why do I need it? I know there's lots of arguments on the other side of it, but I'm staying with overrated.
2: Warren Buffett noted for just buying a gold miner <laughs> recently.
3: So. I think gold miners, different story, yeah. To, yeah. to be honest. Uh, they're producing a product there, but just the physical asset, different story for yeah. my mind. Yep.
2: Fair
1: enough. So overrated or underrated, some of the hottest stocks on the ASX at the moment, the WAX stocks. So your WiseTech, APEN, Afterpay, Zero, and Altium. Altium. Yeah. <laughs> overrated or underrated? You're going to get me fired. I can tell.
3: <laughs> <laughs> We're trying. <laughs> Listen, you'd hate to be a buyer at these levels, but you would also hate to be a seller. So it's got to be a hold. I'm a big lover of, of tech for my crimes at ASX. I also worked in the IPO team talking to companies about listing on ASX. And part of that strategy is talking to technology companies about listing on ASX and accessing Australia's capital markets. It's a very exciting space. Overall, I think tech stocks from perhaps a broader Array of tech stocks, a, a total portfolio, underrated, but for these particular names, let's say hold.
2: <laughs> Hopefully, we can get some more Australian tech companies listed on the ASX, and then maybe the heat will come out of a few, like the concentrated few that we uh, we seem to be investing in at the moment.
3: It's a really interesting space. I mean, I think the supply, um, if I can use that word, of technology companies coming through Australian grown is ever increasing. I remember f- uh, 5 years ago there was lots of um I suppose junior technology companies but uh, they've been growing up over the last 5 years and I think there's a number that would be able to to hit the boards as it were. And also we're seeing an increase in technology companies from overseas listing on ASX because of the way in which our our market is structured. So I think we've got the hopefully the best of both worlds there. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Now, last one to close out this game. We uh, Australians are obviously known for their love of property. So, overrated or underrated Australian residential property? Pure investors point of view. Pure investors. Overrated. Fair enough. um, That's the ASX party line right there. You know
3: know what? I, I, I don't even need to elaborate on that. We're talking about Usman Khawaja before. I think he did an incredible job at explaining why it's
2: overrated. I love that.
1: Call back to an old episode. (laughs) If you
2: haven't listened to that episode, (laughs) hit pause, go and listen to the Usman episode, then come back to this one.
1: (laughs) Now, Rory, we love to understand a bit about the background of our guests and we always start with the story of their first investment. So are you able to share yours and uh, perhaps any major lessons that you've learned from it?
3: Yeah, so my first investment was probably like uh, many Australians was through privatisations in the '90s. So through the mine was the Telstra float. I was probably 14 at that age. Took out a couple of shares, and uh, that so that was my first investment and exposure to owning a publicly listed company. After that, I probably rolled a little bit of money into some highly speculative, as we all know, do, med, med tech, <laughs> medical device companies and, and, and blew it all up. So that was probably my first introduction to investing.
2: Yeah, nice. Yeah. Do you still
1: hold the Telstra
2: stocks? I do actually, yeah. Oh, nice. <laughs> Stoked. From those first Telstra shares to now, have you developed a personal investing philosophy? I have. And I mean, it's taken
3: time for sure for me to develop a personal investing philosophy and and I, I work in the industry as well. So I'm, I'm quite fortunate that I get access to, I suppose, a range of professionals across varying investment strategies, investment beliefs, investment philosophies that I can Learn often and and mold around myself and my own beliefs. So, yeah, in terms of the, my approach that I take with my superannuation or, or my my personal investments outside of super, to be honest, it's not too dissimilar to to. The, the portfolio that equity mates hold, so it's that core satellite approach. I'm a strong believer for that core portfolio. That's what should be focused on achieving your goals. So if it's a retirement goal, if it's a, a goal around saving for a car or a holiday or paying down some debt, whatever it might be, and I believe that that core portfolio should be simple. I think keep it simple is the rule or that or that's the rule I try to apply anyway. So that means index, low fees. Uh, diversified across key asset classes. Don't try to time the market, invest regularly. Yeah, I try to apply that philosophy. Outside of that core portfolio, so the satellite, uh, I think that's where you can have a bit of fun. Investing doesn't have to always be too serious no. um, <laughs> and there's, uh, there's, there's lots of opportunities for you to play out your own personal interests or try to beat the market and I don't think there's anything wrong with that as long as you, you approach it in a, I suppose, a sensible way and you recognize that, that there are risks. So uh, for that satellite, if you're interested in particular themes, be that technology or healthcare or certain stocks in a sector that you work in, Yeah. Go, uh, go for it, I think. Yeah, nice, yeah.
2: Rory. One of the reasons that we've got you on now is uh, the ASX has just released their 2020 Australian Investor Study or Australian Investor Survey. Um, there's heaps of data in there. We mm. were just talking before we started, just the amount of insight that you can gather from it. So, people listening want to know about who else is investing in Australia and some of their attitudes. Uh, it's definitely worth checking out. We're keen to unpack a few of the different elements of it. But I guess just to start with, for people who haven't come across the study before, can you tell us you know, what it is and how often you do it and some, some of those key details?
3: Yeah, absolutely, no problem. Yeah, you're right. There's a lot of information in there. A shout out to Investment Trends, which is a research group that we partner with to put the research together. They're specialists in this area, and, and I think they've done an incredible job, uh, along with the uh, my other colleagues at the ASX, to put the the report together and the web page and uh, infographics that you see on there. But the ASX Investor Study is something that ASX has been doing for almost 30 years now, actually just over 30 years. And essentially, it's a survey of Australian investors. And how it started out was ASX, back in the late 80s, wanted to get an understanding of how many Australians were holding shares and then also to understand how. ASX and our uh, participants, our brokers um, could better service investors in Australia, be that via education programs or better access to tools or through the late 90s or early 2000s online trading. So, it was really to get an insight into what investors were holding and what they're doing it started out as the share ownership survey, but over the last couple of editions, we've actually expanded the range of products that we now cover in the study. So obviously shares is a, is a key and important product set, if I can call it that, but we've also extended to exchange traded funds, unlisted managed funds, hybrids, warrants, et cetera, et
1: cetera. Yeah, nice. So I guess the big question is, now you mentioned there that it was originally to find out how many people were investing. What is the answer to that? 2020. Yeah. How many many people are in the markets asking for a friend who runs a podcast business interested in... Yeah. Yeah, So this is where we get
3: into the numbers. So um, there's 19.4 million adults in Australia. Nine million of them hold investments outside of their superannuation and primary dwelling. Now... Of those Australians, 6.6 million or, or 35% of Australians hold products that are listed on the stock market. So the majority of that is obviously going to be in direct equities, mm-hmm. but increasingly, as we'll touch on, that also includes products like ETFs. Yeah. Yeah. So 6.6 million is uh, the answer
1: Pretty the gents. Pretty yeah. sizable. <laughs> but
2: less than half of Australian adults. So
3: big opportunity. big opportunity, <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> big opportunity. The trend
2: has
3: been really interesting over time. I mean, as, a, as I mentioned, I bought my shares via privatization. And as did many Australians. So back in the late 80s, share ownership was at 9%. And through the period of the the 90s and the early 2000s, when online trading took off, that's where um, the percentage increase really expanded. And it has rested around that 35% of Australians. Do
1: you know where that sits relative to other countries?
3: Yeah. So it's roughly in line with what we see in the UK and the US, which are fairly good good benchmarks. Yeah, right. Okay. I suppose Australia has always been known to be as a percentage of the population quite high in terms of our participation in mm-hmm. the in the market.
2: Mm. That trend that you were talking about really surprised me. There was a chart on the website where it tracked all the privatizations and the increase, but then it really sort of peaked in 2004 and has sort of tail or stayed pretty stable from there. And you think about what's happened from 2004 to 2020 and like the rise of online brokerage and lower cost brokerage and all of these companies trying to make markets more accessible. And yet the percentage of Australians holding shares has remained stable. That was really surprising to me. Do you know why?
3: (laughs) (laughs) The the short answer is no, unfortunately. Oh, listen. I think let's look at our sample for the study. We're looking at um, those assets that are held outside of superannuation, so it's you know held usually in a personal name or or a joint name, but it does include self-managed super funds. One area that I'm I'm really interested in is that superannuation money that's not SMSF. So you know if I've got it in a retail fund or in a in an industry fund, I think that's a really interesting place because I think the self-directed options, the self-directed investment menus are getting a lot better via those providers. Even I use um, one of those options, self-directed for my superannuation and I hold ETFs and shares through that. So I wouldn't actually come up in the statistics on here. Yeah, right.
1: So how has the investor landscape changed since um, I guess you last did the survey? And I guess we could then start digging into some of the key trends that you're seeing
3: yeah so i 'm probably answering that question and and also some of the key trends in that um, I think there's two things that really stand out in terms of the investor landscape. One is around next generation investors and and the other is around female investors so on next generation investors, which I assume is a core demographic for for yourselves we 've targeted or uh, defined next generation investors as eighteen to twenty four year olds mm-hmm. We just missed that category. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and about uh, 9% of investors, next generation investors. So there's 800,000 of them out there in Australia. And about 25% of new investors in the last 12 months were next generation investors. Mm. So that makes them one of the fastest growing segments Mm. in Australia, which I think is extremely interesting. What's also interesting about, I suppose, this segment of investors is what they're investing in. So they are more likely to invest in ETFs than other age demographics. And they're also actually more likely to invest in international shares mm. than other age demographics. And I think taking the the international shares element first, it's, it's an older adage of investing, you invest in what you know. Mm. And these days you, you wake up and you've got an, an Apple iPhone next yeah, to you. Yeah. you. You search on Google, I turn on Netflix, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. These are the names that... that now next generation investors grow up with and, and know, as opposed to ABC, Australian incorporated companies. So I think that's a really interesting trend. And then ETFs as well, the growth in ETFs in Australia, but also globally just enable investors to get easy access to broad range markets or even investment themes that, it, that might be very interesting to, mm.
2: to to those types of investors. So you said there were two key categories there. We just touched on young investors. The other key category was female investors. Yeah. What were some of the insights that you found around female investors?
3: Yeah, so I think the first one is not a good story actually. It's quite unfortunate to see that female investors are very underrepresented in the investor population. So we found that about 42% of current investors are female investors, but obviously we, we would want that to be up at 50%. But on the positive side, there's about 45% of those who began investing in the last 12 months were female, which is up from 31% among those who started investing five to 10 years years ago. So this growing wave of, of female investors starting to starting to enter to the market, which I think is extremely positive. The other positive thing there is that female investors account for fifty one percent of intending investors. So those investors that over the next twelve to twenty four months want to invest. So I think that's a really positive trend in the marketplace. Some things just to touch on in relation to female investors, research um, has suggested that there's still a lot more work to be done to help, I think, females participate in the market to the same degree as what men do. Some of the research, I've got some points here that typically females hold fewer assets, they're less diversified, they're more risk averse. And they're typically less aware of the range of investment options that are available to mm-hmm. them. The research also showed female investors need a larger range of information sources and knowledge before they feel comfortable to make an investment decision. This is probably not going to surprise anyone, but as an example, if men needed to know three out of 10 things before they were comfortable to invest, a female investor would need to know seven out of 10 things before she would feel comfortable to invest. But there is one really positive thing as well that came through which is that female investors tend to prefer to set a well-considered strategy and then stick to it. And I think that that's a really positive thing because that's actually investment best practice, right? Mm. So I think that knowledge gathering they undertake sets them up really well going
1: into the future. Yeah, nice. So what are some of the main reasons that people are saying they're investing you mentioned sort of before you set goals to, through, based on your core portfolio, but I'd be interested to know what the survey is saying is some of the key reasons that people are actually putting money into the market.
3: Yeah, so there's kind of two core things that, that happen there that comes out in the research. Unsurprisingly, it's to build a sustainable income stream that's very prevalent across all age demographics. And then obviously with um, next generation or wealth accumulator investors, it's it's around maximizing capital growth. Mm. But we did ask a question around what financial milestones are you working towards over the next three years as well? The number one answer there was to go on a holiday so that won't be happening. Oh yeah, awesome. yeah. <laughs> 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 don, don, don. Th- three years. Yeah, three years could work, but maybe, maybe. not the next eighteen months. <laughs> the second one, actually, because they won't be able to do the first one, it will help them with number two and three, which is to pay down debts or become debt-free, and then the third one was to, to get their finances or their budget in order. Those are the kind of top goals for investors.
2: I do love that question. Like, what's the main reason you invest? It's to make more money. (laughs) Well, it's not. It's to go on holidays. Yeah. Pay down debt. But it's, you know, it's to make money to go on holidays, you
1: know? Yeah, I don't know. I've personally never put money in the market. To make more money. (laughs) Thinking that it'll be so I can go on holiday. And, you know, unless it's retirement or, you know what I mean? But I'm not like, all right, I'm going to, I don't know, Italy in a year. I'm going to invest in Amazon and that's how I'm going to get there, you know? I just find that... That's personal. Personal opinion. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Do you? You don't. You can go on holiday.
2: I'm not. Yeah. (laughs) I was going to say, I don't have the. uh, You you just have the financial backing that you don't need to invest to go on holiday. You know? You just (laughs) draw from your trust fund. (laughs) (laughs) That's not true at all. (laughs) This is not true. So you haven't answered the question, though. Have I invested to go on holidays? No. No. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the whole thing that we talk about is a lot more longer term than 3 yeah. yeah. years yeah. yeah
1: so yeah i'm 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 interested in the mindset of people or investing then to pay down debt as a goal that kind of to me is like you should just use let the me cash
3: let it. me ask ask you then if ASX was the surveyor so yeah. well, we didn't what's get what's the, your, we didn't get the your, survey Rory, <laughs> so you didn't ask all investors <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> what's your main goal when investing over the th- next 3 years <laughs> 3 years my main investing goal over the next 3 <laughs> this years this is why <laughs> they didn't
2: ask you is
1: to wealth accumulation let's put it that way yeah i'm not intending to take anything out of what i put in over the next three years yeah i just want to build that as quickly as i can Mm. if i had to put a number on it to set the goal that's what i would do maybe i don't know two times what i've got in now three times i don't know but yeah it's definitely Mm. not a material goal yeah and i think you're pointed out something that's
3: really important there which is time frame. We do break things down into time frames when it comes to investing because obviously you need to take account of the the risk that's associated with your particular investment. So if you're investing in 100% into equities for a, a goal that you've got 2 or 3 years away, you should probably rethink that.
2: Mm. Yeah, mm. I, that that was my biggest thing with the 3 years. It's like you may not be going on the holiday if a GFC happens in three yeah, years. Exactly.
1: Yeah, exactly. Or you might be paying a lot of interest on your debt if you're waiting to get <laughs> yeah. get some money to then pay it off. So I think we're
2: going to challenge the ASX on the question <laughs> in this case. Well,
3: I suppose you're making an assumption there that the investment is in equities, right? There's True. a range of True. asset classes that you can invest in. Technicality. Yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> and that's why we're interviewing you and not yeah. the other way around. I mean, you,
3: you could pick a, a conservative fund. That would be an investment, and that would be more suited to a shorter time frame goal.
1: Mm. Yeah,
2: obviously, COVID has come and smacked everyone in the face, Mm. Um, and the market in fast drop and then an incredibly quick recovery. Actually, I guess for context, um, when were the surveys done? Like, where in that COVID fall and then recovery? Were these done? It's a really good point, and um,
3: I failed to mention it at the at the start. One of the really interesting things about this study is that we first went to market with the study in uh, January of 2020, and then. Obviously COVID <laughs> yeah. happened. So we were sitting there having had collected a number of the responses, like a material a material amount that we would have been able to wrap up the the survey. And obviously COVID had happened. So as a team, we sat there and said, well, actually what what we should be doing is going back out to investors and trying to understand the differences in in attitude towards investment or risk or diversification
2: now that COVID
3: has happened. So mm. we did a smaller second survey in May of twenty twenty.
2: I guess in some ways that's kind of perfect, though, because you have a great before and after Mm. sample size to compare. Mm. So... With those two sample sizes and and looking at the impact that COVID has had, what were some of the main things that you saw in the numbers?
3: One of the things that stood out was how people made changes to their portfolio. So did they or did they not make changes to their portfolio? And 54% of people did make changes to their portfolio due to COVID or during COVID. Interestingly, those with financial advisors and younger investors were more likely to have made changes to their portfolio. Those particular investment categories, 17% invested all of their spare money during or or after COVID, and then 17% increased their allocation to Australian shares.
2: I like that correlation between those with financial advisors and young investors. Mm. It shows that young investors are obviously learning, you know, from something that they're making the same decisions in aggregate that financial advisors are?
1: Or financial advisors are making the wrong decisions. (laughs)
2: True. Now, that is a controversial point. You said it, not (laughs) me.
1: It's a really controversial point, actually, because
3: the research showed that a large majority of those advised investors were very happy with the advice that they had received during that period and they relied on their advisor um, during that period either to, to stop them from making certain investment decisions or to encourage them to invest back into the market and, and take on more risk.
2: Mm. I mean, you would be extremely happy if you were convinced in March to put money in by your advisor and then you saw what happened afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> you <would> be, yeah. <laughs>
1: and before we move into a bit more on the ASX itself, how does your team sort of see the investor landscape changing over the next sort of five-year period?
3: Yeah. So in terms of the investor landscape, there's a couple of things that, that come to mind there. I've already kind of touched on two of them, but just to really emphasize it, I, I think female investors, I think is a, is a clear trend. I mean, even in our day to day job, we see a number of groups now, be they uh, financial advice groups or education groups or event groups that are focused on increasing education to, to females in Australia. So I think that's a positive thing. And I I hope that that can increase the, that female participation rate. I think that younger demographic as well, even if we we expand the range you know not 18 to 24 but expand it up to to 30, I think that's a really interesting space in Australia. I think given the way that uh, digital or online is moving, uh, younger investors are just going to over time have access to more tools, they're going to ha- have access to Robo advice, or micro-investing that enables them to get access to the market in a safer, wiser way. I think there's still a lot of work that needs to be done in Australia in, in relation to advice and to, to bringing down the cost of advice and making advice scalable. That's probably a whole other discussion. And the last piece for us that we, we spend a bit of time thinking about is retirees I don't think there's been that much product innovation in relation to product for retirees in Australia, but obviously we've got a a huge number of baby boomers that are going to be retiring over the next five to 10 years. So I think on a longer term horizon, that's going to be a really interesting space to watch as well.
2: Mm. yeah you had in the numbers, there was 2.6 million Australians that were lapsed investors, mm. and the I'm not sure if it was the majority, but a, a large proportion of those people were retirees. so I, I assume that they've moved from the accumulation phase to the spending phase of their life. Yes, that's only going to accelerate you know in the coming years and decades. I guess, you know, there'll be young people that are adding to their super, but there'll be a big proportion of the population selling their their assets. Mm. Do you guys think about that at the ASX and what that could mean? We're
3: not as close to that in terms of how does that actually happen and what are the, I suppose, the considerations for from an investor's point of view. It's that, that whole transition to retirement or, I suppose, wealth gifting, if you like, transition of wealth from retirees through to children is is another, I suppose that sits in financial advice. But what we do think about is the range of product that is available on ASX. So, you know, self-managed super funds are, are a really interesting cohort of investors, right? And we're, we're thinking about, okay, so if you're a self-managed super fund that's entering into retirement now, how would you build a portfolio using the product that's available on ASX.
2: One other question: If we go from the retirement end of the market to the complete opposite end of the market, obviously this uh, only looked at investing adults. But I think a trend that we're seeing, especially in America, but I'm sure it will be playing out in Australia as well, is teenagers and young people getting in the market. And you know the the rise of the TikTok investor and all of that is definitely a trend that is happening. Do you guys think you'll ever broaden the data set out and talk to sort of teenagers and and capture their views on investing and their participation rate as well?
3: It's a really interesting concept, actually. I'll have to take that, that back to <laughs> there the There you team. go. Well, that's actually <laughs> Equitymates copyright. So. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
3: it is a relatively difficult one to, to track, though, isn't it? I mean, I've got two young kids. I've got a two-year-old daughter and a one-year-old son, and so I've got them set up with brokerage accounts, but it's all in my name and they're as trustees and mm. et cetera, et cetera, so it's, it's, it's not the easiest um, group to be able to measure. Yeah, mm. yeah. yeah.
2: The stories of Robin Hood investors, you know, like kids at school trading, you know, hurts and stuff during COVID, it's just like, <laughs> wow. <laughs>
1: so, Rory, before we jump to our final three questions that we always ask our guests, we'd love to just understand a bit more about the ASX. Mm-hmm. And given you're in charge of product over there, what are some of the new products that uh, you're seeing being produced for retail investors on the ASX? And what can we kind of expect to see other than a crypto exchange. And, and uh. if you wanna if you want to
2: break news on the podcast and tell us a new product that we can expect that no one else knows about, that would be great.
3: Obviously I've been, I've listened to a number of your your podcasts and I recognize a number of the speakers in in terms of from a product issue or a fund manager perspective. It's not going to be too dissimilar to, to what they've already talked about. So I think increasingly we're going to see more niche exchange traded funds that are brought to market enabling investors to play to key themes, as I said earlier, be that technology or high growth or robotics, AI, cybersecurity, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's a that's a positive thing. I think we'll see more around that whole retirement space, we'll see more income products, more yield products. I mean there's already a lot of that at the moment. So I think there's there's really good range. I mean there's 240 ETFs, there's 230 M funds, there's just over 111 listed investment companies and trusts. So, you know, there's quite a range of set there, but we constantly have product issuers coming up with new innovative products. So I think that's a positive thing.
1: When will we see the end of the minimum $500 parcel?
3: Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> well, Comsec actually did achieve that through the uh, pocket yeah. their pocket app. Yeah. It takes a little bit of manipulation behind the scenes to make that work. So they made it work. It is expensive though. So there, there's a bit of a trade-off there between the, the minimum investment size versus, I suppose, how, the, the cost to do it and also the cost to service that from a either it's a fund manager point of view or even a a listed company point of view. Mm. If you're a listed company and you've got thousands of shareholders all holding $200, $100 share lots, it it becomes very expensive quickly. True, true. Yeah.
2: I want to ask you a question that you may not be able to answer. And without- (laughs) That that sounds like I probably (laughs) won't be able to answer it. (laughs) Without naming any names or throwing anyone under the bus, I'm sure a lot of different product ideas come across your desk and a lot of them get rejected. Can you tell me the worst- product idea you've ever seen come across your desk? Not off the top of my head, to
3: be honest. <laughs> in short, no. I mean, a lot of that is obviously done confidentially. To be honest, from fund managers that bring products to ASX, very few are wild and wacky ideas, yeah. to be honest. I think we're actually quite lucky in Australia. We, I think we have the right balance between access to choice and innovative products without going down a slippery slope, if you like.
2: I was just trying to figure out where the benchmark was because Bryce has some shocking ideas that he's been pitching and one <laughs> he might uh Bring one or two to your desk at some point. (laughs) Final three. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, on that note, we want to say a big thank you for coming on, Rory. If people want to check out the study themselves, they can go to the ASX website and download it there. If people want to follow you or, you know, see more what the ASX is putting out, is there any particular social media or, or any particular website where they should be going?
3: Yeah. So ASX has a Twitter handle, ASX. You can find the ASX website, asx.com.au. Just a bit of a promo for that website. We'll actually be launching a new website in October as well. So if you like uh, your websites and like them to be slick, then just wait till October because it's, it's a good looking website. Our current one is definitely not up to scratch for the 21st century. So we're looking forward to that coming out as well.
2: Nice Nice one. We do like to end these interviews with the same final three questions. So we'll get stuck into those. First one is, do you have any books that you consider must read? Okay, so one for beginner investors. It's very
3: hard to go past barefoot investor. I think there's a lot of really good points in, in that book and it's, a, it's, a, it's really well tailored if you're, if you're a beginner investor out there and you're wondering what all the jargon means um, and, and how to structure your investment philosophy. I think there's lots of good points out there. The types of books I prefer reading are, are I suppose, not quite investing books. They're more related to business and how to grow businesses uh, or bad business stories. So one that I, I really love is um, Zero to One by Peter Thiel. I think that's that's a great book, and for anyone that follows the technology sector, I think that's a really good read. One on bad business is is bad blood about yeah. uh, Theranos. Great that's an yeah. unbelievable story. And again, you know, for for anyone interested in in technology or, or medical devices, you've got to read both the positive and negative news, right? And it's incredible how how that business got funded for so long. It just goes to show what can happen out there.
2: Yeah. Incredible that it got so much funding and also who it got funding from. Like exactly. very sophisticated investors. Yes. Yeah. Yep.
3: Absolutely. So they all can make mistakes, right? Yeah, yeah. I really like those those last two books
2: in particular. Yeah, nice. The second question is what's your go-to source for investing and financial information? ASX.com.au. Yeah, yeah, good.
3: <laughs> that is actually one. We have an investor update newsletter, regularly have contributors to that. I actually quite like reading it as well. Sorry to keep on the on the tech theme. I'll just try and find something different perhaps. See, really C, don't have to apologize about sticking on the tech theme. We've done it for four years. <laughs> CB Insights is a daily newsletter for anyone that wants to understand I suppose tech themes that are occurring around the world and where venture capital are, are funding different um, themes across a range of industries. I really like the the work and the analysis that CB Insights do.
2: Nice one. And then, final question: If you think back to your younger self participating in uh, Telstra's privatization and getting your first shares, then mm. what advice would you have for your younger self? Buy Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah. <laughs> nice. I'm surprised no one's ever said that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazon, <laughs> Apple, Berkshire. Yeah. <laughs>
3: Listen, it's probably the same advice I would give to my kids. You know, start small, start early, uh, and and continue to reinvest. And if you do that and keep it simple, I think you'll end up okay in the long run. Nice.
1: Nice, Rory. Well, thanks for joining us. It's uh, been an enjoyable conversation, understanding uh, a little bit more about what's going on in the investor landscape out in Australia. Looking forward to the next edition. Uh, We'll hit you up offline. We've got some questions that we could use for our own market research, (laughs) but uh, (laughs) we'll uh, talk about that later. So again, thanks for joining. It's been a lot of fun and looking forward to keeping in touch. No worries. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to Equity Mates Investing Podcast, a production of Equity Mates Media. Please remember that everything you hear in Equity Mates Investing Podcast is general advice only. The content has been prepared without knowing your personal objectives, specific financial circumstances or goals. The host of Equity Mates Investing Podcast may maintain positions in the companies discussed. Before considering any investment, please read the product disclosure statement and consider speaking to a licensed financial professional.